Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, the plight of primary care. Can we fix a broken system? What would happen if we actually had a secretary of primary care? That's not crazy. And that would show that this is a priority, that, you know, you can't solve this with just free pizza every week. My name is Annie Brewster, and I was a primary care doctor for four years. I went into primary care with a very idealistic notion of what it was, hoping that I could have longitudinal relationships with people and really know them and know the context of their lives. I inherited a practice, so I all of a sudden had a huge number of patients. I never felt like I got to know them well. I felt like I was under the gun and I was paid on productivity. So was always churning out the patients. It felt more like a factory. It was really a focus in healthcare on business and money-making over relationships that made me very sad. I worked in a women's health center and I would have 20 minutes for a full physical. That could include a pap smear, depression, obesity management, on and on and on. It's impossible to do. And then human nature being what it is, sometimes people wait to bring up the most important thing until they're walking out the door. And then I just started to feel that tension of, I know I have all these other patients waiting. The way that it started to feel is like as soon as someone walks in, you're thinking about how you're going to get them out which I think is really a tragedy because that's not how it should be. I, every month, would get a printout of whether I was in the red or I was in the black. And so I actually made less money if I had holes in my schedule. I didn't make my schedule, the front desk did. But what that meant is if I had a patient that didn't come to an appointment for whatever reason and didn't cancel it so it could be filled by someone else, then my paycheck would take a hit. So right there, I think that's what's so broken is that it felt like it was creating an antagonism almost between patient and provider. It's supposed to be a therapeutic alliance, but the system almost pits providers and patients against each other. Providers are set up to fail. They do not have the time to do what they need to do in the appointment. And then it's even gotten worse since I left with all the paperwork and all the clicking you have to do on the computer. And answering emails later through the patient system. And it's impossible to do all of that. There's just not enough time built in. So I think it sets up a sense of failure for the providers, like they're not able to deliver the care and really be present the way that they want to be. And I think patients, rightly so, are feeling frustrated, like they're not getting what they need. And they don't feel like they have a person who's in their court, who's got their back. Deciding to leave primary care was a process, and it was one that involved grieving what I had hoped I would find in the field of medicine. It was also about survival, just knowing that I couldn't exist in my life and be a healthy human being and take care of my family the way that I needed to 
with the way the system was structured. So I'm Bob Phillips. I'm a family physician. I've practiced for the last 22 years. I went into primary care after witnessing the power of relationship in helping people change their health behaviors over time. And the goal really is to maintain those relationships because there's so much trust and so much understanding of that patient's history that it really is part of our ability to help people get better. So our health system is driving us to increase the number of new patients we have. And that means that the patients who I've established trust over a long period of time can't get on my schedule because it's now flooded with people who are new. And it means that my patients wind up seeing my partners. We can be standing next to each other in clinic day and look at each other's schedule and go, hey, these three patients are mine. I have three of yours. We need to trade. And that's not what physicians should be doing. Our patients should be able to see us when they need to see us. One of my patients recently was diagnosed with breast cancer. I've been taking care of her for almost 20 years. I didn't find that out until I saw it pop up in the portal from her. She could not get in to see me in a shorter period than six weeks and wound up having a double mastectomy without being able to talk with me. And it made her depression go through the roof. Even the new patients that are on my schedule routinely ask me, can you be my doctor? I had a 24-year-old who'd seen the same pediatrician his whole life, and he was looking for that experience as an adult. And he said, can you be my doctor? And I had a 72-year-old who had seen several of my partners, but had never really seen anyone on a regular basis. And his question was, will you be my doctor? I need someone who can help me with my chronic health care conditions, someone that I trust and someone that knows me. I haven't found that yet. The system is telling them no one can be your doctor. There's no value in relationship. We just want you to get in as soon as you can, which on its face, that's about access. And, and sometimes that's a priority. But in this kind of setting where we're not just making widgets, it completely neglects the fact that relationship is so powerful in helping people's health improve. It says that the value of our work is to get patients in and then refer them on to these really expensive services. It's, it's really about our being a triage and refer function and turned us into a, a, a widget factory of just passing people through without relationship, without the value of understanding them, just to pass them off to the money-making services that they have without really addressing their healthcare needs. So this new measure of new patients per month becomes something that you're scored on every month and compared to your peers to the value that you provide to the healthcare system. So it becomes really potent as a driver. It becomes really toxic to the relationships that are the heart of primary care. And it is likely to drive more of my colleagues out of healthcare and it's making it unattractive for new trainees to come into this space. And it frankly makes it an unappealing place for me to work. This 
This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. In this second part of our series on the plight of primary care, we're back with Dr. Kavita Patel. She's a primary care physician practicing at a community health center in Maryland and former director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the Obama administration. And also Chris Kohler. He's president of the Millbank Memorial Fund and he's also former insurance commissioner for the state of Rhode Island. Chris Kohler, you served on the National Academy of Medicine's committee for implementing high quality primary care. What was the result of that? We identified five areas that are policy priorities. The first priority that we identified was financing. We have to pay providers and teams to care for populations not for individual clinicians, for individual services, procedures. And so that means you got to put more money into primary care and you got to pay it differently. It's absolutely fundamental. It won't take care of all the problems, but until you address the economic incentives, nothing else matters. We think that starts with Medicare because Medicare is the largest payer in the country. It determines payment policy for commercial insurers. The first question insurers ask is, what does Medicare pay? And then they go above or below that. The second area is around access. And we have got to make the right choice the easy choice. The right choice here is to have a relationship with your primary care team. What can we do to facilitate that? What can we do to build benefit designs that encourage. Right now, we should make any visit in Medicare to a primary care clinician free to facilitate that relationship that is so important. Third area is in workforce. We've got to address the the sense of helplessness by training physicians in teams, in communities. We actually know how to do this, but right now we're training clinicians in hospitals and mostly on the coast. It's totally inappropriate for what's needed. And that also comes down to Medicare policy. Fourth area is HIT, health information technology. Right now, HIT systems are really designed to serve the vendor, not the patient, and certainly not the provider. Electronic health records, health information technology, do not prioritize patient-centered care. Instead, they prioritize compliance, And they really prioritize referral coordination, referral networks to to enhance revenues. And then the fifth area is research. We have to invest more in primary care and primary care research so that we learn what works. So those are five big areas. And my work as health insurance commissioner, we really worked with the commercial health plans. We were fortunate to have a local nonprofit. Local nonprofits are a lot easier to work with than the big nationals. And we said, as a condition of your rates, you have to increase your investment in primary care, increase the portion of your dollars that goes to primary care. What we were doing was making up for a market failure, the fact that primary care physicians do not have leverage and get the short end of the stick. We were able to take commercial insurers from about 6% to about 10% of their dollars going to primary care. Um, An organ has followed suit and had much the same results. Now, that does not mean that everybody's rolling in clover. There are still the frustrations for primary care clinicians in Rhode Island and Oregon, but at least you have this collective prioritization of primary care within the health system. So there's lots to learn. I don't want to pretend that we fixed it, but until you reprioritize primary care, it's not going to happen by itself. 
it was public policies that created this mess, and it's public policies that, that are going to change it. So, Dr. Patel, you straddle both policy and clinical care. What do you see as what is needed here? Honestly, Rachel, I truly think that we need to literally blow up the system and just take away all these regulatory and legislative legacies that we've had and just start with what we want the system to be. I would love to see leadership in primary care. We still have many prominent schools that do not have departments of family medicine, that do not have general internal medicine, pediatrics. And my sister is a cosmetic dermatologist. If you told me that the blowing up New World Order would mean I would get paid as much as she does because the value to a patient over a lifetime of what I do far exceeds probably what she does, I would say that's actually accurate and that that's the way it should be. I truly believe that's what needs to happen. But then I come back to a bit of reality and things that I hope I can see. And I do actually hope that we can put people in teaching and learning environments where we actually have a reality check on, here's how you thrive in primary care. Here are the models in which we know that you can be a much better, and I do think of it as like kind of an operator, almost like the CEO of your patient panel, or the analogies that are used in sports of being the quarterback. Well, when I watch football, every great quarterback has a defensive and offensive line. Rachel, I have no, I have nothing, none of those. So what we would do is really, if I don't look at people as 28 RVU potentials in one day, and that I see a patient panel and I have the incoming data and I can use technology to my advantage so that I can highlight people before they get sick and I can effectively deploy teams, kind of offense and defensive lines then that's actually the kind of care one that I'm trained to give. And then there may be moments where I drop into people's lives as an individual because that's what's needed. If you tell me I can do that, people will sign up for that. But it takes that will to build that model. There are too many times where I see people come, sit in the waiting room, get in to finally see me, and it's lost opportunity. It's fascinating to me that someone can spend 45 minutes in my waiting room or that we'll have um, entire staffs dedicated to call people to remind them about their appointments the next day. But Rachel, they're not asking, hey, by the way, like, what are some of the things you wanted to talk to Dr. Patel about? Oh, okay. Tell me a little more about that. Hey, you want to talk about that x-ray? You know what? Dr. Patel doesn't have a copy of that or it's not in your chart. Let's get that. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Lost opportunity. Can you imagine what I could be doing while people are waiting on the phone to verify appointments, sitting in my waiting room? Complete lost opportunity to engage with humans and, and people. And, and Rachel, I was just going to say that there's one school of thought that says, you know what, if we can take Dr. Patel's employer and we can make them accept financial responsibility for the entire cost of care for the population, they'll figure out how to make Dr. Patel the quarterback and they will figure out how to reorganize things. And the other school of thought says, no, part of the blowing it up has to be a more direct intervention to create that environment. Since the Accountable Care Act, we have had this massive experiment where we have been asking Medicare to experiment with paying clinicians in a different way from our historical fee-for-service system. But it seems like there are only certain health systems that learn how to do it and I can still make a lot more money if I keep doing what I'm doing, if I keep doing fee-for-service medicine. 
I certainly were in a better place than if we'd done no experimentation, because at least we've learned some things. I guess I think the question is, are we going to act on them? Or are we going to fall back on the status quo, which has a lot invested in preserving the current way? All the people who benefit from the current fee-for-service system. And there are a lot of folks. It just isn't primary care. So what is being done? We've heard about a push for some kind of agency or national council of some kind. What are we starting to see? And, and Dr. Patel, maybe you can address that. And what would you like to see? I think it'll be important to have a department. Like imagine the statement it would make that we think primary care is so important that we're elevating it to a cabinet position, that it is so important that we have primary care functioning for society that we're putting it at the same level as, you know, the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of State. But I think that a government solution alone is not going to be enough. The private sector is moving at a clip. And so if there's a business case, Rachel, if, if, if there is a very clear way to both deliver great primary care and make money, then that can also be a model that can be accelerated along with having something incredibly prominent within the federal government. But medicine is and healthcare is a zero-sum game. You can't just invent and bring dollars in from nowhere. So when we talk about raising primary care, I know all the specialists kind of shudder because there is an assumption about the seesaw effect that you must decrease the money out of specialty care. I'm still of the mindset that we are wasting so much money in care that we can do this kind of financing, but it does take, as Chris said, an incredible amount of will, which gets back to both in the public and private sector, you want to elevate the role of primary care to be something that is incredibly visible to the American public. So what would happen if we actually had a secretary of primary care? That's not crazy. And that would show that this is a priority. I guess what I'm wondering is we had invested in these medical homes and your research, Chris Kohler, has found that we're investing less in team-based care. Dr. Patel is basically feeling like she's doing it all alone. So, so what happened there? The problem is that we looked at patient-centered medical homes as an investment that had to generate a return in a, in a certain amount of time. And Lord knows we do not ask that about our other medical innovations that are out there. We don't pay for our new pharmaceuticals based on a demonstrated return on investment. We don't pay for our new medical technologies for a return on investment. Why should we ask that of our patient-centered medical homes? But we did. And that's why payers, both commercial and private, lost some of their enthusiasm for it. So what are other countries doing? They're paying a lot more they're investing a lot more in primary care. What are they getting that we're not getting? The first thing they're doing is they're publicly financing their medical education. There's a social contract for when you become a clinician. And in return for all or part of your medical education being financed, you accept limits on what you can do and where you do it that are not ones that we have historically accepted in the U.S. The largest financier of medical education in this country is the U.S. government through the Medicare program. And the beneficiaries of those dollars are large institutions, academic medical centers in the Northeast in particular and the coasts in general. And they have built up an entire capacity 
to train physicians in certain ways that benefit their own operations. So the hospital or the academic medical center has an enormous interest in preserving the status quo, which basically uses physician trainees as cheap labor for the hospital's patients. And so those institutions are not going to relinquish their money. They're not going to say, oh, you're right. We have an imbalance here. Take our money back from us. And I do go back to public policy. There needs to be a process that redistributes that money to train physicians in areas where they're needed, in communities where they're needed. Basically, you have to train physicians in ways that benefit the communities, not benefit the institutions. Are there signs of hope here? Are there signs that we are working toward trying to address this? Dr. Patel? You can call it burnout. You can call it PTSD. But I am seeing many more physicians raising their hands and saying there has to be a better way it first has to start with healing myself. And if they can find that, then they are able to promote the healing around them. Like how, how crazy is it that the person that we look for help from when we're in our moment of need is in such distress and that their fuel tank is so empty? So a bright spot for me, Rachel, is the fact that people are saying like, enough is enough, no more. I don't want all of them to leave the profession but I'm glad they're raising their hand and advocating for themselves and trying to push the institutions they work for that, you know, you can't solve this with just free pizza every week. I mean, having like a physician's appreciation day with your bag of tchotchkes, that's not going to cut it. This has to be systemic and cultural and some places are listening. If you tell me that I would actually get to interact with my patients and that I would have And I don't need a large team, Rachel, but I would have a team that's helping so that I don't have 300 messages and that I understand how what I have been trained for is what I am constantly using my brain for and that I'm not using my brain to understand how to fill out prior auth forms because that's really what I do. The majority of my work is still a lot of paperwork. So yeah, it's financial, but remember finances don't have to just be the form of just more comp. There are ways to do this that people will absolutely run towards if you tell them. We're freeing you of those things that just you don't offer any value to and we don't want you to do. People will run to that. So I think what gives me hope, we at Millbank run a collaborative for states that are interested in investing in primary care. And we've got 22 states signed up for that. So there is a recognition that there is a problem here. Medicaid just put out new provider access standards that really emphasize primary care. Medicare is creating new residency slots with a bias for primary care. And we're seeing employer groups contracting directly with health systems for what they call advanced primary care. Interestingly, health centers have now taken on the responsibility of teaching. So there is something called the Teaching Health Centers Program. Those training programs demonstrate that they have more providers staying in primary care. They have more providers staying in the communities where they trained than traditional residency programs. And I think that's really significant because it produces more of the kind of clinicians that we need to do this work. Another example, a bright spot, is the work that's been going on in Maryland with something called the Maryland Primary Care Program. So you have Medicare and the largest commercial payer there combining to pay primary care clinicians in a different way to give them additional support in terms of shared teams of nurses and care coordinators 
a shared electronic health record, something uh, health information exchange, and a connection to public health. So again, you start to have a system of primary care. So along comes COVID. You have information that you can get from your health information exchange about who your patients are who are more vulnerable. And you have care coordinators who can do the proactive outreach to the patients most at risk. As a result, practices enrolled in the Maryland Primary Care Program had a lower COVID mortality rate compared to practices not enrolled in the Maryland Primary Care Program of 20%. That's a 20% lower mortality rate when you start to create a system of primary care. But public policy is only as strong and public will is only as strong as the people, the electorate makes it be. And you're seeing this dissatisfaction with the idea that healthcare has become a business. Whether you look at pharma or you now see the consolidation of health systems and That gives me hope that there will be more support for the kind of activities that Kavita is calling for, some new models, some new ways of doing the work. Thank you both very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us and uh, hug your primary care doctor when you get to see them. I always do. (laughs) I always do, even though she's about to retire. (laughs) That's Chris Kohler. He's president of the Millbank Memorial Fund and he's also former insurance commissioner for the state of Rhode Island, and also Dr. Kavita Patel. She's a primary care physician in Maryland and former director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the Obama administration. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, an entirely new approach to the treatment of pain that could lead to relief for suffering patients. It was an ascending pain. It got my ankles, my thighs, it moved into my shoulders and hands. It worked down my legs and that was the start of a very, very long journey. I was on morphine drugs, gabapentin and Lyrica and Cymbalta. They were antidepressants that they had found helped with nerve pain. I slept a whole lot. I found no relief. Everything that was given to me had no effect on the pain whatsoever. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.